Let's stand as we read our text this morning. So if you would, could you rise as we read? We do a couple things uh, uh, oftentimes when we read the text. Uh, We stand as a way to distinguish my words from God's words. God's words, it's worth standing for. My words, eh, you could sit down for those, right? So it's a way to do that. But we also uh, say a prayer in the form of, uh, it's called the Shema, which comes out of Deuteronomy 6. It's a way to focus ourselves, get us ready to hear from God, despite everything else that's going on in the world. Right here, right now, we're going to hear from God. So there's this expectation that comes from doing that. So we're going to be in Acts 10 today. I give you no verses because it's Acts 10. We're going to do the entire chapter. So get those legs ready. Get, get nice. Don't straighten them out. You might, uh, you might faint. We don't want any of that today. If you feel like you need to sit, do it. Uh, but we are going to read the entire uh, uh, chapter of Acts 10. Before we do that, let's say the prayer. Uh, say it after me. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. This is Acts 10. And as we read it, just take in the entire story. It's a narrative, so it's, it's a longer uh, set of uh, passages, but just hear the whole story. Let it kind of, uh, uh, kind of wash over you, and then we'll look at it from here. This is Acts chapter 10. It says this, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. A distinct and distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, who is one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, "'Get up, Peter, kill and eat.'" Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? 
And the men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is represented by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. For when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Talk about pressure. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every, from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the providence of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with, a Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses to everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses who God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge and of the living of the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised, the, the, the Jews, believers who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of, their being of them being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is the long word of the Lord. You did it. Good job. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So it was my first day of seminary. And as I sat in that old dusty lecture hall, I had this sneaking suspicion that I was way over my head. And then the class started and completely confirmed that. 
I was way over my head. I kept a running list that first day of all the words. I had no idea what they meant, which the professor seemingly dished out every other sentence. And I just kept frantically writing words down that I didn't know the meaning of. One of these words uh, was, is the word pericope. Now, pericope is a set of verses that make a unified whole. It's like you don't read seven commandments, you read all ten, right? Seven commandments is not a good pericope. Ten ver- the, the ten commandments is. It makes a, a unified whole. Now, of course, I didn't understand or know that word, so that went on my I have no idea what you're talking about list. It went down along with many, many others, more than I want to admit. And then after class, I ran to the library and looked frantically looked up all these words trying to figure out what was being said. Now, when I came to pericope, the trick with this word is that it's dangerously close to the word periscope. It's only one letter off. And in fact, if you Google it, Google thinks you've misspelled the word and offers periscope in its place. And so I got fooled, wrote it as periscope, then began writing it and saying it this way, having no idea I was completely wrong. And it made a lot, a little bit of sense. I'm like, okay, like a periscope, right? Like you kind of focus in on something, like, a, you know, that, I, I talked myself into this making sense. A little while later in the semester, uh, I had a question on an assignment. So I walked down to this professor's office and we began to chat and I saw an opportunity to use this newly formed vocabulary word. It was in my back pocket, locked and loaded, ready to show him just how much I had learned from him. And so I said, you know, Professor, what would you suggest the periscope is here? And he looked at me, a little confused, but I think slightly amused because I'm hopeful that this was not the first time someone had made this mistake. And he just shot a little grin and said, don't you mean pericope? Oh, the worst, right? I walked out of that office mortified. But I will tell you, I never forgot the word pericope ever again, right? That's just how it works. Pericope, a unified whole. Now, one thing that I do here at the church is I actually help with the pericopes. Uh, How we develop sermon series here is that the the pastoral staff will get together and we'll kind of discern where the Lord would have us go in the scriptures for, uh, uh, for the fall semester or the spring semester. And then I take that chunk and I Uh, break it down into smaller chunks, into pericopes that make sense to preach on any given Sunday. And the thing is, is that sometimes a a good pericope can even be just a couple of verses long. Sometimes a good pericope, oftentimes, is at least a paragraph or two. But then sometimes, kind of like today, particularly if it's a narrative, it can be a whole chapter, which is why your legs feel a little tired right now. That a lot of times uh, in story form, that the pericopes are going to be a lot bigger because the story is trying to tell you one specific thing. There's a major theme happening, and you've got to hear the whole story to know what is going on. Now, the trick is, is that this story has all sorts of details and subtlety that I would love to show you. I'd love to slow down and look. Did you ever notice that three comes up a lot in this story? There's three, three, three. Or what's up with the sheet? Though There's a reason 
that there's a sheet coming down. But sometimes when you go too slow, you miss the forest for the trees. Right? There's a lot of good trees in this passage. But today we're going to look at the forest so that we can make sure we get the full picture. So we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And this is the forest of this passage. The forest is this. Jesus' movement takes us from the letter to the Spirit. Jesus' movement, we're in this series called The Movement, because we're going to see all sorts of things, both physically a movement out of Jerusalem, but we're beginning to see a movement, a shift happening in how we are understanding, not, not fundamentally in, in, in God changing, but how God's people are to relate to him and to the rest of the world. There's a movement happening, and this passage is one of the biggest shifts that happens. Jesus' movement takes us from the letter to the Spirit. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that in a second. But let's start off here in the story. What's going on? Chapter 10 starts off by introducing us to a man named Cornelius who's in the Italian mafia. Well, it doesn't say that. It says the Italian regiment. But that's kind of what I think of. I'm sure that's completely inaccurate. But that's sort of what I think of when that he's in this Italian regiment. We'll get to that in a little bit, what that means. But he's, uh, he's uh, an angel appears to him and tells him, hey, there's this guy named Peter. I want you to go get him. I want you to bring him back because he's got something to say to you and the people around you. So, so he sends, uh, Cornelius sends a couple of guys, a couple of his uh, faithful members, three to be exact, sends them out for them to go get Peter. Now it's here that the scene shifts. And now Peter, we've, uh, we're, now, uh, we're now at the point of view of Peter. And as the scene shifts, we find Peter on a roof. And he's praying because that's what spiritual people do, apparently. You go and pray on roofs. So he's praying, and he gets hungry, it says. So as food is being prepared, the text says that he falls into a trance, which is what happens to some of you when you get hungry enough. Don't lie. You just kind of, you know, that hangry happens, and you kind of get trancy, right? I don't know if that's what was happening here. Likely not. But he gets hungry, and he falls into this trance. And this is when the story gets weird because the heavens open up, and this, like, I love how the, it says, like, something like a sheet, right? They're like, I don't even know, like, a uh, bed sheet? I don't know. Like, something like a sheet comes down out of heaven, and there's all sorts of these animals on it that Peter deems unclean. He says they're, com they're, they're, they're common, they're unclean, and, and they're coming down from this sheet. And then the passage says something like a large sheet being uh, let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all these four-footed animals and reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Which is a scripture we read as a family before every meal. We read this passage of scripture just to really let it soak over us. Uh, I'm kidding, but it's actually a good joke. I've actually been to a couple banquets where I've gotten up to say the prayer and I was like, you know, the Spirit has just led me to a, a passage of Scripture this morning. I just, I feel like uh, we need to hear this before we eat. It comes from Acts 10, and this, this is the word of the Lord. Let's just let this one soak over us. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Amen. Let's eat, all right? It's like, you could, I love that one. That's, 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 uh, there's your like corny dad joke, Bible dad joke uh, uh, verse right there. So one of my favorites in Scripture right there. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But here's the thing. Peter says no to God. Think about that, right? The audible, literal voice 
thunderous voice of God from the heavens. And Peter has the audacity to go, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. Right? Like, we all ignore God in those, like, still silent moments, right? When he nudges us to do something, we're kind of like, ah, I'm not going to do it. But, like, who among us is going to say no to the clear, audible voice of God coming down? And yet Peter does. Why would he do something like this? Well, the problem is God is asking him to do something that is fundamentally opposed to his identity. You see, his ancestors have literally never eaten anything that's unclean. He has never touched anything to his lips that was like that in the sheet. I mean, this, is, this goes beyond just like, ah, that's not my preference because dairy makes my tummy a little upset. No, this is like, this, I don't do this. This is fundamental to who I am as a follower of God, as a Jew, as God's people. My, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great—his all the way back to the beginning of our people. We've never touched anything like this. And now, God, now some random day, you're going you're gonna to show me something. And you're going to go, you know what? All that stuff we used to do for thousands of years, yeah, don't worry about it. Forget it. You might say no to God, too. What do you mean, God? You're going to just, like, totally change the game now. You're just, it, like, it's all done. It's all going to be different now. And he says, no, no. I, I don't eat things that are unclean. That's not what your law has told me to do. That's not what your law has told my ancestors to do for thousands of years. I, I don't think I'm going to do that, God. So what's actually happening here? Is God just having a moment where he's like, ah, forget about it. Don't worry, it's fine. You know, no, there's something going on here, clearly. Let's explore that for a second. Now, in our house, where we live with our children, a lot of our food ends up unclean, right? Because between uh, drops and uh, a daughter who eats with her hands and forgetfulness, like the five-second rule in the long household is applied very liberally. Uh, to where we live, right? So uncleanliness is just like something uh, that we get, and certainly as a culture right now, right? Uncleanliness, staying clean, is something that we think about a lot more than we used to. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's not talking about a literal cleanliness or uncleanliness. He's talking about a spiritual one, a spiritual uncleanliness. Because early in the Bible, God establishes a people, Israel, who follows God's laws, 613 of them to be exact. And by doing so, they would be set apart from everyone else. Now, there were all sorts of laws. There were laws about festivals, and there was laws about uh, sacrifices, and there were these laws, these dietary laws. Jews call them today eating kosher. Right? You will see that in the Wegmans aisle, the kosher section, right? These are the things that we, if we're following God's law and have these dietary restrictions, there are things we can eat and things we can't eat. In fact, Leviticus 11 he, they, is one of the places that gives the guidelines for what is allowed and what wasn't, including camels, rabbits, and pigs. And the things in the sheet were disqualified from those. So why is God doing this? Was God just not down with bacon? Because I am absolutely down with bacon. So does he just want to withhold the deliciousness of a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich from Tim Hortons from us? Or is something else happening here? Well, what we need to do is we need to understand the, the very nature of what a law is or what a rule 
is. Because uh, behind every rule, there's actually two different, t- two different layers to any rule or any law that we have. The first layer is called the letter of the law, right? And that's the actual law that we have. It's, it's, it's what's stated. This is the letter of the law. This is what you have to do. But then behind every law, there is the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law is the reason the law exists. So you have the letter of the law, the actual stated law, but then you have the spirit, the reason behind it underneath. Every law is made up of these two layers. Our our little 14-month-old, I call her a toddler. She's probably too small for that designation, but she acts like a toddler. She's just on the move all the time. And as she's gotten, and she's climbing up couches now, up, up stairs, downstairs, she's, she's just motoring. She's all over the place. And so we have had to establish some new rules, some new Rudy laws in our household for her. So one of the things we say is, Rudy, don't touch the stove, right? The, the, the thunderous fatherly voice from on high, like Peter saw in his trance, like, don't touch the stove. Now that rule, that law for her is the letter. You can't touch the stove. But the spirit behind it is much bigger. The spirit behind it is actually about safety. The stove might be on. You might pinch your fingers when you want to bang that, the, the oven door. There might be something, a pan or something up top that if you reach up, you might pull something down on yourself. So the letter of it is, Rudy, you can't touch the stove. But the spirit behind it is much more loving and great. It's It's safety. We love you. We want to keep you safe. There's the letter, and, and then there's the spirit. Does that, does that make sense? You, you, you tracking? Now, every law is layered with the actual rule and then the reason behind it. And if you have kids, you understand this overtly because what happens when you set a standard or a rule? What's the first question any kid ever asks? Why? Why? We hear that in our household all the time. Why? Why? Hey, don't do this. Why? They want to get at the spirit. They want to know what's underneath that rule. Okay, you told me I can't do this, but why? There's the spirit. A kid, a young kid, even understands the layering of any law. This actually explains why we can become frustrated with laws. Because whenever you're frustrated with your law, it's because you perceive the letter of the law and the spirit of the law not to match. Right? If, If you feel like the letter of the law is not achieving the spirit of the law, you get frustrated with the rule. This is why we get frustrated with people who get off on technicalities. Because technically, by the letter of the law, they they did it, but the spirit of the law was broken, and we feel frustrated. What happened with the letter and what really should have happened in the spirit don't match. Uh, Tim and Monica Grafham, they just moved into their new home this week. And uh, so this last summer has been spent getting their old house ready to sell. And they discovered as they were getting ready to sell is that Williamsville just uh, put on the books a brand new law that says when you sell your home, all of your downspouts have to be connected to the sewer line directly. Now, for the Grafham house, their old house, their basement was bone dry for 10 years. Tim didn't even know he had a sub pump because it never ran ever. And yet, the law said you had to put in all of this underground work to connect to the sewers because that's the rule, that's the law. 
even though the spirit of it, which is to stay dry and to make sure your neighbor's yard stayed dry, the spirit was totally being fulfilled. And yet they had to spend thousands of dollars to uphold the letter of the law. They're frustrated with that because the letter and the spirit didn't match. Every time there's a good law, the spirit and the letter match. Every time there's a frustrating law, they don't. And so for these food restrictions, the letter of the law was fleeing, cutting out, and avoiding specific types of foods that were considered unclean. That's the letter of it. Don't touch the stove. Don't touch the bacon. Right? That was the letter of the law. But actually, the spirit behind that, the, these dietary restrictions is actually way more beautiful and life-giving than we know. Because the spirit of the law was a built-in daily reminder that when you choose God's way, you flee from sin, you cut out that which harms you, and you avoid everything that soils your soul. By avoiding food that were considered unclean, you were, inviting, you were invited into a daily rhythm to avoid thoughts and attitudes and actions that were unclean so that you might live. I avoid these types of food as a way to remind me day after day that as I follow God's way, I need to avoid the things that will be dirty to my soul, things that will be unclean to my walk. And so I make a conscious choice. I choose to, to follow the letter of the law in order to embrace a spirit of the law behind it that's good and true and right. This is the rhythm Peter and the generations before him gave their whole life to. And now, thousands of years later, God seemingly says, yeah, never mind. Kill and eat. I've made it all clean. You might be tempted to say, no to. This is my whole, this is my whole life. This is my whole rhythm of life. To avoid that which will make me unclean not just physically but spiritually as well. So what is, you know, what is going on? Why would God ask that to happen? What, what is the deal? Well, here's the thing. At some point, every law at some point, every law outlives its purpose. Given enough time, a rule will always begin to deviate away from the Spirit. And at some point, a law outlives its purpose and it no longer matches the Spirit. Let me give you an example. Did you know up until a few months ago, it was illegal in New York State for groups of individuals to wear masks in public? I'm not kidding. Penal law 240-35. It was illegal for groups of people to wear masks in public. Now, they repealed this 200-year-old law because it's kind of hard to mandate masks when it's technically illegal to do so. See, this law outlived its purpose. The container didn't fit. The letter of the law no longer matched the spirit. 200 years ago, this law made sense. Because actually it was all about identity protection. It was all about making sure that people weren't falsifying their identities in order to endeavor in devious behavior. That was the reason behind the law. And that, so at that time and in that place 200 years ago, making sure that you didn't cover yourself in public matched the spirit of it, which was making sure that, we were that people weren't falsifying their identities. That was the point. 
And so while we get rid of this law now, we get rid of the letter of the law, the spirit of the law remains in new legislation like identity protection and identity theft and falsifying records. We've created new laws that get at better that connection of the spiritual law so that we don't need the letter of that particular law anymore because it doesn't make sense. You track him. Right? We, we hold the spirit of this 200-year-old law, but we don't need the letter anymore to do it. And in fact, to maintain the letter of the law, once it outgrows its purpose, is actually restrictive and oppressive. Think about it. If, I, if we had that rule, the don't touch the stove for my daughter, when she was 18 years old, you would look at me funny, right? You would be like, what is wrong with you? It would actually come across as controlling, right? It would come across as, as, uh, as uh, obsessive or controlling or, or just weird. And the reason is, is because we hope that by 18 years of age, Rudy will understand the spirit of safety of the stove and will no longer need the letter of the law in order to achieve it. Does that make sense? Right? At some point, the letter of the law, don't touch the stove, no longer is needed in order to accomplish the spirit of the law. So by 18, she, you know, we're hoping Rudy will be able to cook eggs for herself because she will stay safe and live under the spirit of the law and no longer need the letter of it in order to do it. Paul actually writes about this as he talks about the law. He's, he's writing to a, a group of Christians in the city of Corinth. And in, uh, in his second letter, in 2 Corinthians, he actually uh, makes this distinction between letter and spirit and, and communicates this idea that at some point we need, to, we need to let go of some of the letters of the law while still maintaining the spirit. He says this, You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. And then here goes the, 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 the distinction. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, that's the law, but on the tablets of human hearts. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. At some point, a letter of the law, if, it's, if it, it outlives its purpose, begins to suffocate you, and you're no longer living within the freedom of the spirit of it. So what God says to Peter is you've grown, not, not, ah, never mind, don't worry about it, forget about it. No, he says you've grown up. You're able to follow the spirit of the law without needing to adhere to the letter anymore. You don't need the letter of the law because you have the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who, give, who was given to you at Pentecost and will lead you in all truth. You have a new guide now. You, you, you don't need the law to guide you anymore, right? The festivals and the sacrifices and the food restrictions that used to guide your steps, they used to be your rhythm, but now you have the Holy Spirit as a dancing partner. You don't need to live by the letter of the law. Those were the things that guided you before, but now the Spirit has come upon you, and it's a new day. Not because we are giving up the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law maintains. We're going to hold rigorously to that. We are not going to, that is not going to change. But how that practically lives out in our community can change. We've, we, let's figure out together what the letter of the law is going to look like that truly matches this new spirit 
of the law, because the Holy Spirit will come to guide us in all truth. And that doesn't mean the Old Testament is regressive and outdated and unapplicable. In fact, the Old Old Testament writers themselves recognize the distinction between the letter of the law and the Spirit. There's dozens of passages about this, but take a look at one here in Hosea 6, 6. It says this, For I desire, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings, right? There's this letter of the law where you do burnt offerings and sacrifices and memorials and all of this stuff, but if the Spirit isn't being achieved in it, it, it's worthless. It's not not worth anything. And so the Spirit of all 613 laws live on, as Jesus said, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them, to interpret them correctly, to show you the spirit behind them so that you might live. You see, Jesus' movement takes us from letter to spirit. Now back to Cornelius. The passage says that he is a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. Because what Peter's going to discover now is what he's just learned about food restrictions is now going to apply to people as well. But that same letter-spirit dynamic that allowed him now to uh, be free to eat what he wanted to eat or was allowed to eat, now is going to apply to who he associates with, too. And what Luke is trying to do here, he's trying to show just how not Jewish Cornelius is. Right? The passage says already that he's a Gentile. But then it mentions he's a centurion, which is a Roman official— And he's from the Italian regiment, which means he's a foreigner. He's not from the region. So basically what Luke is saying is he's a Gentile Roman foreigner. He's like the furthest away from Judaism you can possibly get. But despite that, he is a devout man who feared God. The angel commends him that your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God, which is not unintentional. Notice that spirit uh, letter dynamic again. He's not Jewish. He's not doing it the Jewish way, but because he's giving to the poor, because he's a devout man, the spe- he is, he's achieving the spirit of these memorial sacrifices and these memorial laws that they had to live by. He's actually achieving it in his behavior, despite the fact he has no Jewish blood in him at all. He's actually doing it. He's actually being there. Now, Peter gets there and realizes, I'm breaking all sorts of laws here. It's a lot of Gentiles in the room right now. I'm not supposed to associate with any of y'all. But he, he, he really does uh, kind of say it out loud. He says, it is against our law for a, for a Jew to associate or visit with Gentiles. Like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of non-kosher stuff going on right here. And that comes from places like Deuteronomy 7. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, make no treaty with foreigners. And a treaty would be any type of association. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give their daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. There's the letter of the law right there. Right? God gives a command. Letter of the law. Stay away. No foreigners, no treaties, no associations. But even within the law, he gives the spirit. Listen to this. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. There's the spirit of it. 
And it's not just because I don't like people. It's because they have foreign gods, and when you intermarry and when you associate with them, you're going to, you're going to lose the spirit of the law of faithfulness of one God, that very first commandment. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, one God. If you intermarry, you're, you're going to sacrifice that or risk that. So don't do it. The letter of the law was to avoid different types of people, but the spirit of the law was so that you wouldn't be led astray. But what Peter experiences with the dietary laws applies to this as well. So for Peter, while they maintain good wisdom about who you associate with, maintain the same spirit, the same spirit of one God, love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, the letter of the law no longer need apply. The letter of the law is outdated because God's plan was never to limit his love and grace to only one people. His movement was literally to move to every tribe and nation and tongue. And the nation of Israel was to be a picture for the rest of the world so that eventually we would graduate from the limitations of the letter to the freedom of the Spirit. Perhaps Peter learned a thing or two from his teacher, his rabbi. Because in Matthew 9, it says this, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. You see, Jesus' movement takes us from the letter to the Spirit. Now, now what does this mean for us? Because, you know, 2,000 years ago, okay, makes sense. But for us today, what, is that, what do we take from that? Well, a couple of things here. When we move from the letter to the Spirit, when, when we live in, in the Holy Spirit's rhythm, we move from legalism to freedom. We move from a, a type of legalistic Christianity to one that is totally aware and keen and in lockstep with the Spirit that gives us freedom. Because in every generation, every church, every individual, there are laws, rules, guidelines that keep us in rhythm with the Spirit. There are days and disciplines we keep. There are those we choose to abstain, things that we choose to abstain from, and there are things we choose to partake in. And the key to joining Jesus in his movement is to ri rigidly hold fast to the spirit of the law while discerning together what the letter of the law is that will match for us in our community. To rigorously, unapologetically hold to the spirit of the law in which God makes us a distinct people, but being willing to discern, or one place that Jesus says it, to bind or to loose, that which will be our rhythms for keeping that spirit of the law in our community. God is righteously hell-bent on you keeping his law, but we have the freedom and the spirit to bind and loose the letters of the law that will represent it. And so therefore, we will not all observe the same moments and practices, but we will all recognize Jesus who ties us together. And we will not all abstain from the same things, but we will all allow the Spirit to lead our convictions. 
And we will not all partake in the same things, but we will all commit to them pointing to Jesus. We will all commit to the spirit of the law and then allow our community to discern together what the rhythms of our community will be, what letters it will, it will uh, manifest in who we are. When we move from letter to spirit, we move from legalism to freedom. I'd like to invite the band up as we close. But there's one other thing that we can learn from this. When we move from the letter to the spirit, we move from exclusion to inclusion. When we are led not by the letter anymore of the law, but of the spirit of the law, we are led into a more inclusive ability and way instead of an exclusive one. Because we all know a Cornelius, don't we? You work with Corneliuses. You live by Corneliuses. Your mom's group are with some Corneliuses. And some of them might be moral or devote in some way, but many of them are not. And the question we will ask is, will we desire mercy and not sacrifice? Will we sit with the sinner and tax collector? And will we live by the freedom of the Spirit and not the limitations of the letter? Will we be present with those who need Jesus? Totally, fully committed to the Spirit of maintaining our identity in Christ, maintaining no uh, mixture with the world, maintaining our love and our commitment to the one who hung on a cross. But will we allow that spirit that we hold to enable us and allow us to be with those who need that man on the cross too? We just got some new neighbors. Uh, and they seem like nice enough folks. They're not married. They're living together. They're moving in. We can hear this, the music and we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty sure kind of where they stand. You know what I mean? We have a couple Corneliuses moving in. And they need Jesus. And we can't allow the letter of the law to tell us we can't associate with them. Because they need baptism with water and the Spirit. And so we pray as a family, hey God, we need to be totally... We want to be totally sold out for you. Our identities, oh Lord, uh, convict us when our identities are getting too rooted in the world. Lord, we want to live. We are totally religiously, rigorously committed to the spirit of the law. But Lord, show us what the rhythms of our day look like so that we can be with them. Because we want to be with them. And my prayer is that for you too, that we as a, as a community will not know not for the letter of the law, but for the spirit of the law, that we, Randall Church, will be a community where there's something different about them, but I like it. I like it. And that only happens when we together discern as the spirit. God, how can we be totally sold out to our world and maintain the distinctness that we can offer them something different? Will you join me in a prayer for that as well? God, we want to be that in our community. We want to be that as individuals. 
Lord, show us where our Corneliuses are and show us if it's a neighbor, if it's a coworker, if it's a friend, God. May we maintain the unresolved commitment to your spirit and your law while showing us how we can be present with those who desperately need that water. Give us wisdom to bind and loose appropriately so that our witness will remain even as we sit with sinners and tax collectors because it's not the healthy who need the doctor. Lord, it's the sick. May we desire mercy and not sacrifice. And may we extend that mercy out into the world. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.